1: Cryptocurrency has arrived. This April, Fidelity became the first major retirement plan provider to allow everyday people to invest in Bitcoin with their retirement
0: accounts. The fact that a regulated, traditional, high-status financial institution is telling you, "Hey, buy some of this stuff," right, gives it some of the stamp of approval that is not present in one of these traditionally, like, kind of sketchy-sounding crypto exchanges.
1: That's Anthony Lee Zhang. He teaches finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. He says this move by Fidelity signaled a major shift in how traditional financial institutions view cryptocurrency.
0: The past cycles, I think, somewhat more involved kinds of people that were more on the fringes of traditional finance, right? In this cycle, you see everyone getting in.
1: And then crypto crashed. What we do know is that even for those diehard Bitcoin supporters who are used to volatility, the last 74 hours were a very rough ride. In just one month, from April to May, nearly $1 trillion of value in the crypto sector just vanished. Bitcoin dropped to below $20,000 for the first time in years. Now, volatility is nothing new to cryptocurrency markets. But with many more regular investors putting their life savings into crypto over the last few years, a lot of people will end up getting hurt by this crash. Now, investors are worried that we've entered a crypto winter. That's when crypto values fall and stay low for a long period of time. Has the bubble finally burst for cryptocurrency or is the future of money just delayed? According to one argument, there is a four-year cycle just built into cryptocurrencies, and we're just getting to the ugly part. An answer could come from traditional financial investors. Fidelity, one of the largest financial services firms, doesn't seem to think crypto winter is here. They've doubled the size of their digital asset wing, signaling they think institutional crypto trading is going to increase despite the downturn in the market. Anthony, though, is not so sure.
0: I don't know what this crash is going to do to this wave of institutional adoption. It could be like following this crash, like this crash delegitimizes this whole thing. The whole trend reverses and basically we shrink back down. It hinges on the question of whether, in fact, these big traditional investors, in fact, are less fickle than Silicon Valley hipsters, basically.
1: The real question is, are the crypto markets too risky to allow regular people to put their life savings in?
0: Some stuff is like too risky for regular people. You kind of want to keep people out of investing in these things. I think that sort of, especially with this crash and people having lost a lot, like regulars may end up saying like, look, we don't want people to put themselves in this position again, where basically they put all their money and lost this.
1: Today on the show, how does the crypto market compare to traditional markets? And what does that mean for the future of crypto, big investors and our economy? I'm and Glenton, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. It's gotten a lot easier to invest in crypto, and its share of the investment market has grown. But just how much of the market is tied up in crypto? Can you help me to quantify how much of the, say, investment world is in stocks and bonds and, say, in crypto?
0: So crypto, even at its peak, was, not, was a sizable fraction of overall financial markets. It was not by any means um, the majority. So then I think the numbers are approximately the market cap of the S&P 500. I checked this a couple of months ago, it was up at like $20 trillion. Um, I believe stocks and bonds, um, stocks, private bonds and government bonds have roughly equal-ish size. Um, so think of each as being 20 trillion, right? And then its peak, crypto was something like if you add up basically most of the coins together, you get a number like 2 or 3 trillion. Now it's below like 1 trillion, right? Um, so you have something like um, crypto market cap is something like 10% the aggregate cap of the stock market. So huge compared to just considering the fact that this entire asset class did not exist basically until fairly recently, but still sort of small in size compared to sort of regular like, other assets that people invested in for a long
1: time. All right, to be overly simple, crypto and blockchain are relatively recent technologies that allow for decentralized record-keeping and verification of transactions. And the hope of blockchain is to get around a lot of the impediments of traditional markets. Every few years, there's like a technology that everybody says is going to change everything, right? Cryptocurrency may be different, but the people who invested, they're still people. So, what I'm wondering is how is the crypto market different from, say, the regular market when it comes to how people, say, respond to it?
0: Everyone has slightly different views on this. I think, like, I have a particular view on what crypto enables, which is that sort of crypto fundamentally, crypto and blockchain technologies are, in a sense, substitutes for, in fact, lawyers. And then so my core thesis about what the core contribution of blockchains are is that basically in the past, if you wanted to write a contract, right, you would write a piece of paper and you would write basically like I promise, um, I promise a scenario to basically give you like, say, $20 um, in like a month or something like that, right? I think there's a real difference in this technology in that it lets us, it lets people in the world who previously didn't have access to basically promise enforcement technologies to write promises. All of finance fundamentally consists of promises. What blockchain does is it changes the technology for promise enforcement, and that makes a real difference in finance. Like, I do think this technology really has something to it that's different. Now, I think, like, if you look at the market, I don't think the market totally shares my view. So you sort of see in every tech wave, I totally agree with what you said, that this speculative mania arises where everyone thinks this technology sort of is going to be revolutionary. The vast majority of people have no real clue what the revolution actually is, right? And then the sentiment that this is going to change the world, I have no idea how, but I want some part of it, leads to this mania of people just like assuming that the answer is known by someone else, right?
1: When I was doing research about this, I found the panic of 1819, 1837, 1857. These are all market crashes back when stocks and futures markets were new. And history has a whole list of things that get hyped and hyped. And then the hype sort of ends. And we do what comes most natural. We're humans. And humans panic.
0: No, exactly. And I think the hype cycles are funny. And you get the sense it's like, I'm looking at this. I'm not totally sure what everyone's excited about, but everyone else is so excited, there must be something there. And you kind of have this confirmation bias effect of wanting to see something there. It's actually quite similar, I think, to the O1 tech bubble, where basically sort of everyone was excited about tech. Nobody was super sure what everyone was excited about. So you got this thing where you take like arbitrary businesses and start gluing tech onto them because like tech plus X must be a good thing for every X. And you could raise spectacular amounts of money as long as you try to do tech for like, Something right, and I think in this blockchain wave, if you see the kind of companies that were raising, you see similar kinds of like speculative mania. Just like everyone tried to rebrand into blockchain, just because sort of attaching yourself to basically the rocket ship, like got you tons of funding, attention, so on and so forth. Because nobody had any clue really, or a lot of people had no real clue what this technology was supposed to do.
1: And some of the places that blockchain technology ended up being used were pretty ridiculous.
0: Music NFTs, um, real estate, supply chain, so on and so forth, healthcare, medical records, stuff like that. Everyone was trying to say we're gonna do blockchain, that's gonna revolutionize our industry, right? I won't like say in particular which of these I think work and which of these don't, but a couple of these I'm like, I from my knowledge of the tech, I'm pretty confident blockchain has no relevant application to this particular stream of work, right? But I think it's very similar to the O1 tech bubble in the sense that there was a huge amount of mania, a ton of money wanted in, and nobody really had a great, like a lot of the money didn't really have a great sense what the tech was, what was special about it, and what applications of it made sense and what didn't, I think. Families have a lot going on.
1: You know, when I think of this, I uh, there, there's a, a possibly apocryphal tale that the one of the first heads of the SEC, uh, Joe Kennedy, was talking to a uh, was was talking to his cab driver, and his cab driver gave him a stock tip, and he like was like, ah, sell. I mean, that's an apocryphal story. But you know, my videographer friend, who never thought is you know getting into crypto. You know, my barbers literally talking about it. Um, the, the, the investor in crypto is different from the, say, middle-aged guy at Fidelity or Edward Jones or one of those places. I'm wondering how the nature of the difference between the investor, how does that affect you know, the marketplace and what it does?
0: I think like crypto, precisely because there were no barriers to access, precisely because it was so easy to just go in and buy this stuff, right? Like a lot of it, anecdotally, it seems like a lot, yeah, I mean, as you say, like, you talk to sort of, I mean, like, sort of people you run into, people driving Uber, Superbarber, <laughs> so on. All of them know about this stuff, to varying degrees. Some of them are running simple strategies, just buying Bitcoin and stuff. Some of them are running like pretty complicated, sort of, kind of yield farming and so on strategies, right? And so the thing is, I think you can think of it as like 08 with these like super complicated, actually risky, but non-transparent things. But anyone could buy the MBSs, not just institutions. And the layers of protection between you and the risky investments is even like cut smaller precisely because crypto was so effective at disintermediating all the layers of like funds and pensions and whatever that usually invest in those assets on your behalf. So I think that's kind of a difference that like why it went this way.
1: I wonder if the recent crypto crash will scare off investors who are less risk averse like will we see people back away from crypto
0: it it feels to me like we're going to get less of this at least for a bit of time going forwards what lesson would you have learned from the past two years of investing right just by watching the markets right like the lesson you would have learned is like the more risk you take the more you get for the past i mean ignoring the past year but basically from like covid onwards Markets just like went one direction. Every trade that should ha- not have worked, worked, right? You like buy tech stops, they like go up like crazy. You buy GameStop when like the fundamentals really don't seem to justify it, goes up like crazy, right? So the lesson you learn from all this is basically that, sort of in the short run, like everything that shouldn't work is working, right? I think you have know, market conditions <laughs> that really explain like why so many people get into this belief that basically the old guys are wrong, the way to win is to sort of take ridiculously risky bets. It was very difficult to teach my class in these times because I would basically tell my class, like, look, you got to ignore everything that happened in the past year when we talk about this class, right? Because none of this advice works in the past year. Everything which is like really should not work is working spectacularly well over the past year. Finally, we are vindicated. The stuff that is isn't supposed to work stops working after a while, right? And I think sort of in terms of narratives, like I think investors watching the failure of these strategies Finally, may sort of hopefully convince you, like, look, this doesn't always work to just like load up a ton on risk. Like risk doesn't like these things don't always pay off.
1: What do you think it's going to take for crypto to genuinely become mainstream for, say, my mother to give my niece a Bitcoin instead of a savings bond? How do we get to that? And should we?
0: I think Bitcoin is kind of special. A case in which it eventually has value, right, is that basically what they call the digital gold thesis, right? Like the thesis is basically like people hold gold not necessarily because they value it in and of itself but because everyone else thinks it has value, right? And there's also a finite amount of gold in the world. As a result, you want to hold this thing because sort of you're guaranteed basically because of its scarcity and the consensus of everyone that it has value. And then so the question basically the thesis is like Bitcoin has properties like gold. There's a finite amount of Bitcoin. Um, You'll never sort of print more than the Bitcoin algorithm says you're allowed to print, right? And then if everyone agrees it has value, then it will continue to have value, right? And then, so where could this thesis go? In this cycle, it looked like you were seeing more people seemingly buy into this thesis. You were seeing institutions, family offices, um, investment funds, um, various kinds of entities basically start saying, hey, we want to allocate a bit to Bitcoin, right? And then sort of, if this trend continued, if you started having like central banks say, hey, we like hold US dollars because they're somewhat safe, we hold some gold. Why don't we hold some Bitcoin also? And that sort of backs up the value of our fiat currencies, right? You can imagine a world where basically like many of the entities in the world hold part of their portfolios in Bitcoin, right? And that dramatically expands, I think, the demand for Bitcoin and can support sort of higher prices of Bitcoin and can support um, sort of, that's I think the bold case for Bitcoin. I think the weird thing here is like, we do not have a historical case, I believe, in which a asset with no fundamental value has purely through consensus, acquired value for any long period of time i cannot think of one example of this
1: anthony says just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it can't or won't happen
0: however the argument seems to me cohesive enough that sort of there's a first time for everything it doesn't seem impossible to me that this could happen so the bull case i think for bitcoin like in the long run the world in which like this is pr- fairly widely adopted is a world in which purely through consensus everyone is like i'm going to hold a bunch of this because like gold it has value everyone agrees it has value and sort of i want in holding parts of the market parts of valuable assets in the market to hold part of uh, my portfolio and this stuff yeah
1: we know right now crypto is hardly regulated and a lot of the shenanigans going on in the market are because There isn't a body that oversees or regulates. You know, what are some of the basic reforms that could be put in place? And is there a body out there, you know, a government, uh, organizations that are poised to step in and play the role of sharing?
0: So the SEC has done, I think, quite a bit in, I think, a fair amount in trying to regulate this space, and I think has also exerted some pressure in that crypto has been like edging carefully to try and avoid what is the SEC's jurisdiction. And I think that has sort of limited some of the excesses that um the crypto firms have 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 done, right? And so, for example, um one simple example is the SEC has jurisdiction over anything which is a security. Crypto firms have basically been very reluctant to print tokens that have cash flow rights, um, basically because of the fact that this, they believe, puts them under jurisdiction of the SEC. So that's like one example of basically, there is regulatory pressure being exerted on crypto firms. And the SEC has done a bunch in basically going after crypto firms in basically like requesting information. So I think there is some regulation going on. I think that like one barrier here is that crypto has moved this so fast, I think is one thing that it's like, Regulators I think took some time to just understand what was even going on here.
1: You know, I know a lot of middle-aged, you know, financial advisors and planners and I know they don't fully understand crypto and you seem to be saying that as the average finance guy or gal comes to understand the markets, regulators are going to see where the holes are and create regulations that work, like what happened after the 29 stock market crash. That gave us the SEC and other regulations.
0: I think, like, regulators unfortunately do a lot of learning from hindsight, and they're gonna do some of that, I think, here.
1: They'll regulate it when they fully understand it.
0: Better too late than never, I guess. Right. So
1: thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me on.
1: Anthony Lee Zhang is an assistant professor of finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Well, That is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also a part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I'm Sinarian Glinton, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. Thank you for listening.